You are listening to Why Can't We Have It All, a podcast focused on exploring the missing pieces in our healthcare system. This podcast is sponsored by Bowtie Medical, an innovative healthcare company that offers integrated virtual healthcare designed to keep you in control of your health and what you spend on it while lowering the cost of healthcare for you. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast, Why Can't We Have It All? I'm your host, FD. In today's podcast, I'd like to introduce my co-host, Zal, who is our engineer and producer. Welcome to the show, Zal. Thanks for having me. During today's topic, we are going to explore one of the key issues in healthcare delivery that has so dramatically and yet silently changed the way we Americans receive our care, interact with our doctors, and unbeknownst to us, has contributed significantly to high cost of healthcare for all of us. We will explore how hospitals have evolved from charity houses of the late 19th century to become the centers of delivery of healthcare in the U.S. as oligopolistic financial institutions in many cities who employ the majority of the doctors in those cities and as a result have contributed markedly to the high cost of healthcare in the same cities that they support them. I live in Northeast Ohio, Cleveland area, where there are four large hospital systems. They all are non-for-profit, and each has an annual revenue of more than $1 billion a year, ranging from $1 to $8 billion. These systems compete with one another for the business of sick care, as they make their money when people are sick. The situation is very similar to many other cities across the U.S. like Boston, Chicago, Los Angeles, and New York. One of those two hospitals in Northeast Ohio opened in 1886 as a charity house, and the other one in 1921 as a hospital just a few blocks down from the first one. As between the 1886 and 1921, advances in antiseptic techniques, general anesthesia, x-ray, and nursing was allowing more common use of diagnostic and uh, treatments of the diseases that were increasingly being done in the hospitals. The charity houses were left over from the poor houses of Europe, where when the person didn't have the means to take care of themselves, the palliative and personal care would be provided to them by volunteers and caregivers, mostly from the religious organizations or religious intentions, like Sisters of Charities, as there were very few effective treatments for diseases at that point. Under the Hill-Burton Act of 1946, uh, after World War II, which provided low-interest loans to the communities who wanted to build a hospital in their cities and towns, the number of these hospitals increased to 10,000 across the U.S. And um, was this because of the low-interest costs? I mean, it's free money, easy to open a hospital? Exactly. Uh, so every town got together and they wanted to have a hospital, uh, uh, and that's how it happened. But the evolution of some of those hospitals to today's large financial institutions is intriguing, as those small buildings, some of them, now have turned into mega complexes of buildings that employ tens of thousands of employees, 
and compete with one another not based on the quality and the price of their services, but based on their marketing budget, how much money they can raise, and their financial margins. None of them pay taxes for billions of dollars of revenue they generate. And as research indicates, the cities where these major systems exist have the highest cost of healthcare and perhaps a poorer health outcomes. So those hospitals, they either consolidated or they became a part of a larger system. And right before then, in 1930s, by a little invention that Baylor Hospital of Dallas had created, that for uh, the privilege of staying in the hospital for 20 days a year that was offered to the Teachers Union of Dallas, uh, the teachers would pay 50 cents per month for that privilege. During World War II, the employers started paying for that expense uh, to attract skilled workers, uh, which were in shortage. That, in essence, became the source and the origin of insurance that would pay for the cost of hospitalization. This development is significant because it uh, effectively created a third party other than the patient or the consumer, you and I, to pay for the cost of going to the hospital. The seemingly innocent and reasonable but quiet replacement of the position of payer to the hospitals replaced the user, the consumer, again, you and I, as the payer with the insurance company or the federal government, and therefore depleted us from our bargaining power or gave it to the third party. At these payers, of course, face the increasing cost of hospitals and uh, healthcare. The pull and push between them started in 1980s under uh, President Reagan's time. And since then and ever since, uh, Medicare as the single largest payer uh, to the hospitals have become the dominant um, payer uh, for the hospitals and therefore the Medicare rules and regulations prevail. Okay, so in one hand, the hospitals have increased in numbers to about 10,000 or what used to be 10,000, and yet using them has become more expensive and the payers are trying to contain their payments from them. Um, so what do you, where do we go from here? Um, that is where the new financial realities of high cost of hospitalization uh, imposed extreme pressures on these 10,000 hospitals uh, beginning in late 1980s and early 90s. As the markets and people and communities realized there were simply too many hospitals in the U.S., and each one of them, in order to remain competitive, they had to have the next modern version of the CT scan or MRI or whatever the advancement was there to compete with the other hospital down the road. Therefore, in late 1990s, that is the turning point uh, where we went from 10,000 hospitals to existing number of about 5,000, the consolidation of the hospitals began in most major cities or markets like Boston, Chicago, or Cleveland. The two largest hospital system in Northeast Ohio that we discussed started buying their smaller community hospitals and consolidated them under one big hospital system. However, it soon became clear that the consolidation and reduction of their overhead was not enough to contain their cost. They had to control the referral patterns and the food chain 
in the healthcare, all the way from the office of the primary care physicians and emergency rooms. So every patient and his or her associated source of revenue, meaning the imaging studies, the laboratory tests, the surgical procedures, and so forth, should be channeled now into the big hospital system uh, the, uh, the, and not to be leaked out to the competition. This is how the new wave of recruiting doctors and most importantly, the primary care doctors as the employees of these big hospitals started. The doctors who used to be independent in their communities running their practices and they knew their communities, they knew the financial status of their uh, communities and so forth, soon became the employees of the hospitals in major cities under the, this newly formed physician practices groups. And this is what you would call the hospital-controlled healthcare system? Yes, exactly. Uh, because now the main hospitals, the systems, control the delivery of the healthcare all the way from the primary care offices, emergency room, all the way up to the main hospitals that happen to be in the downtown or the main part of the cities. Right. And so my question is, what is wrong with the system? Um, one can argue that there are positives that come out of hospital consolidation. Wouldn't you? Um, it depends on whose side you're sitting on. The consolidation and control of the referral patterns or referral channels definitely help the hospitals, most of them nonprofit, and increase their revenue and allow them to hire more of the administrators to run the systems. The research shows that there are 10 administrators for every doctor they hired during this consolidation because they needed to figure out how their doctors should see their patients, how many patients they should see per day, or negotiate the, with the payers, with the insurance companies, uh, how much to get paid, uh, or borrow money and issue bonds to build more buildings, uh, to put more expensive artwork on their walls, and all the other stuff that the big financial institutions do. But in the process, this consolidation of the hospitals and then the physicians has quietly changed the landscape of the healthcare delivery during the beginning years of 21st century and converted the charity intention of the hospitals to strategic financial targets of large multi-billion dollars financial institutions. Like any large financial institutions at this magnitude, now the primary aim of these systems is no different from any other multi-billion dollars financial institution, regardless of their purpose or products or tax status. Let me explain a few of the consequences of this transition. Now the doctors who work for those systems are encouraged, if not mandated, to send their patients to the facilities of those hospitals, regardless of how far they are, where the cost of the MRI or CT scans or laboratories or simple procedures is five to 10 times more than an independent facility in the old neighborhood, or even the old community hospital. The offices where the doctors saw their patients now are considered a part of the hospitals and therefore they charge facility fees that the good old doctor's offices could not charge. My experience as the clinical leader of one of those hospitals was that simply every Monday morning I would sit at my desk 
and look at the list of my faculty and my doctors and compare or measure how much clinical volume they had generated in the past week or month or whatever. How many surgeries they had done, how many MRIs or labs or other diagnostic or other expensive tests they have ordered. Because this clinical volume now under the CMS ruling is transferred to a unit of financial transaction that was created by Medicare called RVU. It stands for Relevant Value Units. It's a unit that is assigned to every clinical service, diagnostic test or otherwise, and has a monetary value associated with it that determines how much the hospitals will be paid for those services and consequently how much the doctors who ordered those tests will get paid. Therefore, every physician employed by these hospitals has a target RVU that they need to generate per month, quarter, or year. As the total RVU generated by that physician determines how much income they will have. Wow. Um, so in effect, this consolidation has effectively led to increased revenues for the hospitals and not necessarily lower rates for the consumer. Exactly. You're correct. A report from the OpenTheBooks.org, which is a nonprofit government watchdog in 2019, it states that the nation's largest nonprofit uh, hospitals saw their combined net assets grew 24% to $203 billion in the fiscal year of 16 to 17, 2016 to 2017, compared to only one and a half percent increase for the publicly traded for-profit hospitals. And if you consider that seven out of every 10 hospitalization or hospital admission in the U.S., goes to the nonprofit hospitals. And then the average profit margin for hospitals in the US is about 8%. And that compares to range of one to 3% profit margin for grocery store, for food, which is a much more essential need. One and 0.89% for retail and 4.3% for transportation industries. You could see that these hospitals, these financial institutions, Profit margin is higher than some other more essential needs we have. Wow. So the problem you're describing is that the healthcare system is now delivered through 5,000 or so hospitals that are these financial institutions that have had to protect their financial well-beings and not necessarily the well-being of their communities that support their tax-free status. <laughs> um, but another and perhaps a more important question is that are you suggesting that change in the aim or attention of the hospitals may affect the behavior of the doctors who are employees of those hospitals? Um, you're correct on both points. Although one may accept the first point easier, that hospitals have to make money to stay in business. There's nothing wrong with that. But the root of that business, taking care of people's lives, patients, through a formally trusted relationship between the doctor and the patient is more problematic issue. Let me explain more. Healthcare is a unique industry that uh, the person who is giving you its services, the doctors, must be a trusted agent of the consumer of that service. So the loyalty of the seller of the service, if we characterize in that fashion, has to be with the buyer or at least the doctor has to be a guardian of both the physical and financial well-being of the patient or the person who goes to them. That is how 
this largest industry of our uh, country was formed, was built. When you go to a car dealership as a consumer of a vehicle or a transportation uh, vehicle, you act as a customer, meaning that you look for the best bargains based on quality and price. You have some basic information on what the running market rates are and what you can bargain for for your needs. And traditionally, this type of bargaining was not only a part of the buyer and seller interaction. Uh, for example, in the U.S., we don't negotiate for the food price, but we know we do for cars. We go for, for houses. But in many other countries and in bazaars, everything, including the food price, is up for negotiation. But the, in those industries, in the car when you're buying a car, the purchase you made, if it doesn't meet your expectation or something goes wrong with it, either a law or regulation protects you, like in the car industry, it's called a lemon law, or you would return it and get your money back, depending on the return policies, uh, or you would never go back to that uh, seller, dealership, or store, or what have you. But the that formula doesn't exist in the healthcare today. And this hospital-controlled healthcare delivery model, first of all, most hospitals uh, and definitely doctors don't know the price of what they're offering or selling to you. As over the past 80 to 90 years, they have not seen you as a customer, as it is the insurance company or the Medicare who is paying their bills. Second, it may feel unusual to you to ask your doctor about the price of his or her services as you'd be concerned about their reaction. Third, since you know your insurance is going to pay for most of the expenses, all you care for is how much out-of-pocket coinsurance or deductible you will pay. Right. Yeah, I think the I think the car dealership comparison with uh, purchasing healthcare is a great example and a reminder of the satisfaction of purchase uh, we expect as customers from businesses, organizations. Um, so why should we expect anything different with our healthcare? Um, could you shed some light on why doctors being employed by the hospitals is an issue, or why the quality of health outcomes are worse in cities where the big hospitals are? Well, this is at the heart of complexity of the healthcare as a business and a financial institution driving it, and why the current uh, hospital-controlled healthcare system may have shifted the nature of practice of medicine uh, very quietly. There is no problem with the doctors being employees of a hospital, of course. But remember, the doctor is expected to be the guardian of your health and your financial well-beings. That is how this sacred relationship was built over a hundred years ago, and still is expected. I know most, if not all, the doctors would never do anything to harm the health of a patient or their patient, but they becoming employees of large financial institutions with defined financial targets that puts monthly targets on the shoulders of the, of the doctors puts under a question, at least, whether the doctors are to be trusted with their patients' financial well-beings. And again, I'm not questioning the, the, the health well-beings of the, of the patients. Uh, the doctors would watch that with all their efforts. But the financial well-beings of the patients is a different issue. Whether their loyalty hasn't changed from their communities, the, the patients, to their 
employers in these financial uh, institutions, that is a question that needs to be addressed. Yeah, and I think it puts the two essential parties, um, the doctor and the patient, at odds with each other because the doctor is obligated to fulfill the best interests of both his financial institution, the hospital, as well as the patient's well-being. And oftentimes, those two interests conflict with each other. Yes, exactly. Uh, let me share with you some other data. Uh, that is maybe the reason to explain the data that suggests that increasing cost of healthcare in the cities where these large systems are is also associated with poorer health outcomes for people living in those cities. There's a significant amount of research over the past two or three decades that shows a remarkable portion of what is delivered by these systems is unnecessary, meaning lots of tests, surgeries, and other expensive stuff that don't lead to better health for people of those cities or communities. Research started in Dartmouth uh, uh, Medical Center, a school of medicine, that shows at least 30% of services provided by these hospitals to Medicare beneficiaries are unnecessary and waste as they don't change the health outcomes. You can look up the Dartmouth Atlas of Healthcare if you're interested. A line of research that has started publishing in JAMA, which is the Journal of American Medical Association, a widely distributed journal, under the title of Less is More. So the journal is asking for uh, physicians and the researchers to show them how delivering less is leading to a better health outcomes. And that led to a, another movement called the Choose Wisely that is sponsored now by over 80 professional uh, societies, encouraging patients to have a direct and candid and upfront conversation with their doctors before they undergo any expensive testing or surgery. A person who led some of this, uh, Don Berwick, uh, published an article which is fascinating uh, that added the waste components of the systems that adds to up to about 50%, that is 5-0, of our annual spending of $3.5 trillion uh, for healthcare in our country. So that waste alone in today's dollars adds to about $1.5 to $2 trillion. That number is more than the GDP or gross domestic product of more than 90% of the countries. Wow. You know, I think this is very interesting for me. Um, as an average consumer, it shines light on how uninformed we are, I think, about um, the healthcare process, the ethics that go behind the business. Um, how can we create a system where we can have a trustworthy relationship with our doctors regarding both my health and my finances? Well, that is the challenge. That is the missing part of our healthcare system. I and many other propose that the possible solution is for the consumer of the healthcare to become a customer. Again, there is a difference. Consumer is the one who is using it. Customer is the one who is equipped with information and inquires about the quality versus the price, meaning that the consumer should become a shopper for the healthcare services. The data from many independent organizations uh, indicates that up to 90% of uh, elective services, both inpatient and outpatient, are what the Trump administration now calls it shoppable services, meaning that the consumer could shop them by comparing quality and prices as they are not emergent or they are uh, or urgent. Right. And I think that sounds simple in saying, but 
Um, first, we have to change how a consumer views purchasing healthcare. Um, so for an average consumer like myself, what are some ways that the average customer can keep themselves informed and uh, be more educated when deciding how to purchase healthcare? Uh, well, I think we should leave that for another uh, session of this podcast. Okay. How the consumers of the healthcare, we all of us who have been the consumers for the past 80 to 100 years when the modern medicine started, could be, become a customer in the healthcare. What do we need to go through that transformation? And what changes that transformation would impose or require from the rest of our healthcare system? Would it change the relationship between the doctors and their patients? Do we need additional tools for us to know what the fair pricing is? And how could we have that conversation uh, comfortably with our doctors in the privacy of their offices? One thing's for sure in my mind, though, that is there's no other top-down solution that could create the desired efficiency in our healthcare system and reduce the cost unless and when the consumer has become a customer. As the events of the 20th century and examples of healthcare systems in other countries have shown, regardless of number of payers, whether it's a single or a multiple payer system around the, around the world, or it's the provider, whether it's a single versus a multiple provider. For example, the Canadian system is a single payer, multiple provider, whereas in UK is a single payer and single provider. They have not created the efficiencies in the healthcare industry that we would want uh, for, for us uh, in, in America. Because I think that is the job of the customer to protect her own pocketbooks and benefits by becoming a, a customer and remaining an active customer. Like any other industries that we discussed, that the customer has driven the efficiencies. Right. This is the proven formula in my mind, if any other top-down approach could have worked, we would have had a very successful and thriving Soviet Union economy. Right. I agree. I think the topic deserves its own dedicated session. Well, thank you so much, Zal, for allowing me to go through this discussion with you. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. I think I learned a lot today. Well, I'm your host, FD. Thanks for listening to this episode of Why Can't We Have It All? Please send me your questions, comments, or stories about your personal experience with healthcare to info at wcwha.com. Again, that is info at wcwha.com. And follow us on Why Can We Have It All on Facebook and Twitter to stay updated on upcoming episodes. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, stay safe and be well.